Hello and welcome to Promo Noise. I'm your host, Alex Morin, and man, am I ever thrilled to present the culmination of the Mentor Series blogs in this interview. It's a two-hour and 20-minute interview with my mentor, Stan Gallen, but I will not make you watch two hours and 20 minutes. Instead, I've broken it into two very manageable chunks that you are going to love. We are going to cover material that will blow your mind. We're going to talk about the early years at Debco. We're going to talk about significant memories, greatest challenges, Stan's own mentors, relationship building, and we'll also touch on the psychology of the buyer, and so many other things before we get into part two in the next episode. So listen, I'm not going to tease this any further. I'm extremely excited about it, as you can tell, and I hope you're going to love the authenticity and the genuineness of this interview. Please enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Promo Noise Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Morin. I am joined today by my friend, my mentor, Stan Gallen. And this is a very, very special podcast edition because it's the first time ever, it's the first time in the history of life that I have done an interview on this particular podcast, which is wild. And most of you that have been following the blogs that I've been writing, the Mentor Series blogs, are now familiar with Stan Gallen. If you're Canadian, you know him. He's a household name. If you're American, you probably don't because most of his travel was really in Canada and not because of a criminal record. So here we are with my mentor, with my friend, Stan Gallen. I'm so honored to be with you here today, Stan. And in all honesty, the introduction didn't do you justice. You are beyond a mentor to me. You are a friend to me. You're somebody who has provided me guidance. You're somebody who shepherded me along the way, gave me so much valuable advice, led by example. I could go on and on and on. And I'm sure during the course of this interview, many of these truths are going to come out. So welcome to the show, Stan. So absolutely thrilled to have you. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm already got my uh, hair colored, cut, and I've got my glasses. Is sitting properly. It turned out it wasn't my glasses. It's my face that is a little bit cockeyed. So I'm ready to go. <laughs> oh, man. So cool. And, and this is what I love about you, Stan, is that you're humorous. You are self-effacing all the time. You have that ability to be able to de-escalate a situation, make people feel at ease. And uh, I love that about you. Why don't we just jump right into a podcast interview? Because, hey, you know what? Why not? All the nerves disappear at that point. We just get to have fun. We get to talk as human beings and as friends. So let's start as best as we can chronologically, because I think what we really want to do and what the purpose of this podcast episode is, is to really highlight um, your genius, Stan. I, I would like to highlight your story. I'd like people to understand that you are a regular human being. You're a person that that made it. You're a person that uh, has inspired countless thousands of people. And I want people to understand your magic. I want people to understand that in many ways, they're not dissimilar to you. They have similar stories to you. And I hope that comes across in this podcast. So starting at the very beginning, Stan, what was it like in the early years of Debco, the very beginning? Well, it was cultural shock. I came from the corporate uh, world. I was uh, a senior operations officer at the Bank of Nova Scotia's head office. And uh, suddenly I'm working in the basement of my brother's house. Um, 
the early days had a lot of challenges, um, flooding, you know, our samples uh, being put at peril because we stored them in the bathtub and somebody accidentally turned the water on. And I mean, these were crises that you that you were faced with on a daily basis. It was a true startup. We were not working out of, you know, uh, some type of office. It was in a two-room basement uh, of of my brother's uh, location. <laughs> so we're talking complete and utter bootstrapping. Is that even legal? Can you can you actually start a business in your basement uh, no, and have inventory? No, no. <laughs> you have to be zoned. And uh, we were not properly zoned. It was a residential zoning, as a matter of fact. Um, we learned about that later on. And you actually had to make sure that cars were not placed in front of your house uh, because it was not a commercial location. <laughs> no kidding. And given where Debco got to by the time it was sold, did you have any idea in your mind that this company was going to be successful and as successful as it ended up being? I think clearly when you're starting, I, I, I didn't have the insight. That was not me. Um, I live day to day, but in retrospect, my brother had an entrepreneurial pedigree. I mean, he had already successfully started three businesses, I think before he was 19. Um, one that was particularly notable uh, started with his endeavors with Junior Achievement, where he started a company called The Can Man. And he was selling beer can lighters to all the beer stores in Ontario. I mean, he had me as an employee. So I actually was a wingman for him right from day one. So if you look back, if you add his entrepreneurial spirit and his track record of success, the innate gallon drive that had already been apparent with both brothers at the time. And if you use that old adage, the Benjamin Franklin statement, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. I was told early on countless times that Stephen Gallen gets up every day at 3 a.m. So if you use that and you mix it all together, I guess the, the possibilities of success were, were higher than, than normal. Yes. No kidding. And, you know, just like any startup entrepreneur, here you are in a basement and your inventory is being flooded and you've just left a bank job. Did you have any moments of doubt whatsoever? <laughs> Where is that? Because I know that's characteristic of entrepreneurs. Was that the case for you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the ability to go from a structured corporate environment to such an unbelievably unstructured environment uh, where you were wearing a multitude of hats on a daily basis, some di differing from day to day. I struggled with that. And I also struggled with my ability to fit into the Gallon family dynamic. Mm -hmm. It was a family business and there were established relationships. And I will admit that I struggled mightily at the beginning. And for being candid, I... I don't know if I reapplied back to the Scotia Bank, but I think within the first year, I actually made a call uh, to schedule an interview with the possibility of going back to the bank. And if you ask me, did you ever go to that interview? I don't think so. I think I canceled it before I actually did. No, actually, kidding. Go to it. 
view. What was it like that moment that you jumped off the diving board, the proverbial diving board, as as I did 15 months ago in leaving, you know, my corporate position at HPG? Um, How what's it like to resign? Like, is that is that a crazy situation? The funniest part was when I got promoted to the it was the processing department at Scotiabank at their head office at 44 King. I was supervising 44 women. Each one of them knew a great deal more about their job than I did. The shock of going from the branch level, I used to run Chinatown branch at Spadina and Dundas, a very large retail branch, to go to head office. I know that I asked to leave that branch immediately because I was completely overwhelmed by it. And the manager of the branch said, you give me two weeks. After two weeks, if you want to leave, I promise you, you can go back to the branch level. Interestingly, um, the moment that I resigned, and I think I gave a two-month notice, I fell in love with working at the Scotiabank. How psychologically, how that worked out, the moment the pressure was off and I knew I was leaving, I never wanted to leave. Um, But I did. And uh, that would be in 1986. No kidding. So I'll, I'll tell you something fascinating about that little story there. At what I coach these days is to have a knowingness about what you want to do and then release it, right? Be confident in yourself. Be confident in your energy. And a lot of people have a hard time doing that as they're trying to attempt to accomplish something. And so what's interesting is that psychologically, you let go upon putting in that two-month notice, and all of a sudden, everything works out. It's beautiful. It's easy. It's fun. It's fulfilling. And then you got to leave and work in a basement after that. (laughs) Were there any pivotal moments um, in the course of your early years at Debco that really set you on the track to success, moments that were defining for you. Um, there were two that I that I thought of. Actually, there there are there are others, but I'm going to go with two. Okay. Um, what really differentiated us as a player in the industry was the introduction of next day delivery of free samples. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that was so revolutionary. Not only that the sample packages were free, but they would go by priority post and arrive across Canada the next day. You want to introduce yourself, you want to invest in a distributor's success. It was a huge financial endeavor, but you made a name for yourself extremely quickly. Um, That was the number one marketing tool used to springboard Debco was the next day delivery of free samples. Um, It was hard enough to get samples from a distributor, from a supplier, excuse me, for them to to arrive the next day without a bill was revolutionary. The second thing that I still heard of that was really groundbreaking to me, I was asked to speak as a at the SAAC new supplier meeting. It was the first time I had ever stood up in public. It was the Board of Trade. And I began my speech with, announcing, I am a direct seller. And it was sort of like a play on the the AA meeting. I still, up until the year that I left, which would be 2018, still had people come up and say to me, 
I was there at your first presentation in, it must have been 1991 or 92. It made such an impact that as a direct seller, which was the number one fear that a distributor had, that you stood up and announced that you were, and that you promised people that it was already institutional uh, selling at that time that we would treat them ethically and honestly and the and the direct selling days were gone and that people could count on us to be trustworthy and honest oh those were the, the two most defining moments for me i i love those examples and i'm going to tell you that you know my success and and my rise through the ranks were absolutely aided by systems that made me look good. And I was an account manager, as you well know, that's how you hired me. When I would deliver samples to British Columbia from Ontario, and they would arrive the next day via Purolator, people would be stunned. I mean, they would call and they would just say, you are the most amazing person I have ever, ever done business with. Either that or they'd be actually really pissed off with me and say, I'm not paying for that freight. I am not paying for that freight. And then I would say, whoa, whoa, cool. it's, it's all good. It's on us. And then the tides would change, wouldn't they? So a- absolutely amazing. And then to your other point, Stan, about your speech, it reminds me um, of something I did when I was, I don't know, I want to say 13 years old and I got a scholarship to, uh, to a school of fine arts. And I was in this room in the opera program with many people and we were introducing ourselves and you had to say something about yourself. And I was terrified. Everybody else was twice my age. I was the only kid. And uh, in introducing myself, I said, I'm nervous as hell. That was, as a boy soprano, was the first thing I said. And everyone erupted laughing. And from that moment on, it was game on. We were friends. It, there was a humility. And so I, I, I've always appreciated that about you, is your humility and your honesty. You tell it the way it is. And so I can just envision you, because of course I wasn't at the company at that point, standing up and saying, I sell direct. Like you said, like an alcoholic would say it, I am an alcoholic, Right. And many of those alcoholics don't drink again for the next 25 years, forever, for the rest of their lives. And you never sold direct again. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. It it certainly seemed to imprint that meeting, which uh, seemed to to really resonate with distributors. Because imagine that meeting, that innocuous meeting at the Board of Trade in the early 90s was still commented on. I would say in my last year, I heard people, three people say, I just want you to know, I was at that first seminar when you spoke. How powerful that must have been. Like, I had no idea. I had never had a, never presented in front of anyone. Um, that, That really was a defining moment for me, I guess. Well, that leads me to the next question, because I, there's no mistaking what happened with that speech for me, from my perspective. In my opinion, what's happened there is that you truly unleashed your, your real energy. And when one does that with, with authenticity, it resonates. And the degree to which the energy comes out resonates for sometimes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years. And in, in, a, in a person like Gandhi or, or Mother Teresa, 
for a lifetime and beyond, right? And so I, I, I don't doubt that people in your last year at Debco were still talking about that because it was real, because it was real energy. Um, Stan, that energy makes you an unbelievable leader. Where did your leadership come from? Where, like, is, is it innate? Did you have to learn it? Like, how did you and how, how did you become such an unbelievable leader? Well, I certainly didn't know I was one, but interestingly enough, um, I was forced to go to a sleepover camp, Camp New Moon. Um, socially awkward. We're going to get into that as we move along. Okay. Um, and on the la- I was there for 30 days. And on the last night, uh, the lights are out. There's about 12 or 14 of us in our bunk beds. And uh, the counselor, the lead counselor, Bob Palmer, said, we're going to have um, a bull session. I'm going to tell each of you just what exactly I thought of you in the past 30 days. I mean, it's cringeworthy. Um, he got to me, and I'm like, oh, gosh, this is, this could, is not going to go well. Uh-oh. And he said, to me, he said to me, you were a leader in the cabin. You were like having another counselor. And he thanked me for being that person. And I was like, you got to be kidding. I mean, it was the first time the concept of leadership. I mean, what I was, I I got maybe 11 or 12. Um, It was not something that I expected to hear. Um, And then when you add that, I guess I had that innate ability. Okay. Um, when I used my teachings from Brock University, I had an honors degree, which you asked that question later, but I had an honors degree in business psychology, and I was an avid textbook reader, and I bought into all the principles of organizational behavior, uh, uh, human motivation, reward, uh, positive reinforcement. Mm. Um, Having that apparent innate leadership, which I didn't know of, and thank you, Mr. Palmer, for telling me. (laughs) um, And then you gave me the tools from university. Um, I think that that was when I recognized I had those particular skills. Unreal. Unreal. So you mentioned an honors degree in business psychology. Is that is that what it is? Yes. How, so what's, is that your entire school background? Tell me a little bit about your background so that people can understand this is what Stan Gallen studied. This is what he did uh, leading up to your time at Debco. Well, I ran away from home um, in 1976, but I ran away from home legitimately. I applied to three universities that were not within this, the, the, the traditional GTA, there was no York University, there was no backup. Well, I don't know what they would have taken me at U of T, but um, they, they, they accepted me at McMaster in Hamilton, Western, which was London, and Waterloo. And it wasn't I was particularly a great student, because at that time in the 70s, you know, a 60% average got you in. <laughs> nice. So I chose to go to McMaster because in the event that I wanted to come home, it was the closest location by uh, Greyhound Bus. And um, I went there to get a Bachelor of Commerce, but unfortunately I found Flamborough Downs Racetrack and I met a guy who had a car 
And as a result, I ended up with a BA in sociology. No way. Um, and, and so mortified, so mortified at what I had done that I had to determine if I was lazy or if I was stupid. Okay. So I got advanced standing at Brock University. And when I met the dean, I treated it like he was doing me a favor. I said, Dean, I promise I will study every night. Please give me advanced standing. I will make you look good as if, as if I needed to. But I was challenging myself by making a promise to the dean that I would work hard. And I matured. I went to Brock. I got an honors degree in uh, business administration. Yep. Graduated second in my class with an average grade point of, of 82%. So it was a complete and turtle, uh, to, uh, turnaround because I made a commitment. Dean Hanrahan wouldn't have even remembered. It must have sounded bizarre to him that I was making a commitment, but I needed that because I needed to fulfill that commitment and promise. And that stayed with me and I never looked back and it changed my entire work life as a result of graduating with that degree. That speaks to my heart, the fact that you said that to the dean, because when you verbalize something, especially to somebody else, if you're an achiever, if you're somebody who, who takes pride in achieving things, you're now accountable, aren't you? You're, you're, you're accountable to yourself. You've said it. It's been said out loud. And I, I even noticed that this morning, I, you know, who loves to work out? Uh, there are times when I do, but there are times when I'm like, oh gosh, another workout. Okay, this one's going to hurt. But I, I said to my wife before I, I started the workout, I said, all right, I'm going to go downstairs and work out. And I did that deliberately, Stan. I actually said it because it made sure that I was going right downstairs and I wasn't going to goof around beforehand. So I, I totally understand. Now, you said the racetrack a couple of seconds ago. I don't know you as a gambler. Like, you've never been a gambler. Were you a gambler in university? Like, I had no money. I mean, I, it, was, it was absolutely ridiculous. I was working in the steel mill to pay my way through school. Okay. Yeah. I was taking 20 or $40 a night to Flamborough and losing almost every night. The whole thing was, was counterintuitive. It was just so dumb. And then I ran out of food. And, and, and I, actually, I actually ate. I had a cat. <laughs> when I ran Don't out tell of me food, you ate your cat. <laughs> I used to eat the cat's meow mix. Uh, it was like trail mix. Everything about my McMaster days, were just, they were just – Absurd. I was just a absurd, <laughs> stupid person. Um, but again, I don't know if I mentioned my, my majors at Brock were, which I said, were business psychology and marketing, yep. which segued right exactly into what I, I pursued as a career once I left the bank and joined Depco. Okay, okay. So totally appropriate place to go then. Yes. Uh, you're talking about business psychology. Now you're, t you're talking about marketing. And I, this is the, you're the guy who inspired me to understand the rationale of the customer. So let's talk about customer service for a couple of seconds. You oversaw a department with an awesome customer service manager in, in my friend Cindy. Um, and you... You were responsible, really, for turning this department into a perennial winner. People who worked in that department would win awards every single year. Talk to me about your philosophy of customer service. Well, 
I think early on, we used to have letterhead uh, in, the, in the traditional way. And I remember when I developed a slogan, which it seemed kind of neat at the time, but in retrospect, it really was timeless. And it said, Debco Bag Distributors, yep. little quotation marks, turning buyers into clients since 1983. And you figured, well, that's kind of stupid. What does that mean? Well, it was all predicated in the concept. A buyer is somebody who has no loyalty. He's price sensitive. If your price is right, he'll go to you. If not, he won't. But a client has bought into the entire Debco experience. Mm. I was trying to find ways on a daily basis to turn the traditional promotional products buyer into a client by letting him avail of a whole bunch of tools. Now, you never knew for sure what was the tool that turned him on. Could it have been Dory, a receptionist at the time, who remembered his name? Could it have been in an encounter with you? Could it have been an encounter with their account manager, which they really bonded with? Could it have been a free samples that, that arose and, and arrived there? Yep. You never knew for sure what it was that turned a person on. But every day I tried to find what it would be. And, and it was a hybrid. It was never the same for what for all the customers. Everybody was motivated by something different. I tried to find that different on a daily basis. Mm. And I think all suppliers, maybe subconsciously, are trying to find what turns a customer on uh, and enhances their experience. I spent my entire life at Debco trying to find what it was. Was it a direct drive? Was it a sample? Was it sports tickets? Was it gift cards? That's all I ever did mm. was trying to find how to make every touch point memorable, which in turn would enhance goodwill with the client. My view about goodwill was we didn't use customer service reps. We always called them account managers and that it meant empowerment. They were empowered to handle the customer experience from one end to the other, from, from order taking to problem solving to problem resolve. We were the only one that did that. And it was all part of my customer service philosophy. Um, goodwill, the, the account manager's job was to understand the level of goodwill that we had with every client. I, back then, used the analogy, goodwill to me was like fluid in a ceramic coffee cup. Okay. It had no lid, and the fluid level could go up and down depending on experiences that that client had had with us in the intermediate, intermediate days or, or weeks. It was the role of the account manager to know the level of the fluid in the cup. And we were trying to constantly find ways to raise the fluid level. Because in the event that you had a bad experience and you had to lower the level, as long as it never got to the bottom, the client would maintain their loyalty to you. So being memorable, being caring, being empathetic, they appeared to be tools that were not widely practiced among suppliers. And the fact that we did that um, paid immediate dividends in becoming a supplier of the year in just about our second year of being in the industry. Huh. So that would sort of define my idea of customer service. This is all encompassing 
attempt to have goodwill enhancement through any tool that you can get your hands on. And speaking of winning customer service and and supplier of the year in your second year in the industry, at that moment, did you know you were on to something? Did you start to feel it? Did you did you realize this is going to be something big? I, we can we can run the we can run the the board here. Well, at first, no, um, I didn't. I didn't. We, interestingly enough, I think we joined the association in '93. In '94, we came fourth in voting, and I always remember there was a company out of Ottawa, White Knight. They loved us. And I and, and, and the, one of the proprietors, Gary, said to me, oh, you know, I, I saw you came forth. You know, we should have voted for you. We forgot. And I realized had he voted, we would have been in a tie for bronze in our <laughs> first year of being in the industry. Um, I think when you were selling commodities, um, you needed to differentiate yourself. And being able to have taglines on your, at the again, letterhead yep. that showed that you were a supplier of the year uh, and showed the year. And as long as the year was current, like I remember sometimes seeing people have, uh, you go into their showrooms and they'd be proudly displaying, you know, distributor of the year awards from 11 years earlier. Right. Um, I don't know if you were damning yourself with faint praise. But I felt that if we could be currently having a lot of logo markings on our letterhead that that were, you know, 1994, 1995, um, it showed that we were current, that that we were imprinting on the distributor, that we were a supplier to be a force. So um, I didn't know that we were on to something, but I did take a great deal of pride. It was like my report card. Mm. The, winning an award was like my personal report card is I was the guy who was at the time running the, the customer service operation. And I just got an A. Yeah. I just got I got graded. So it meant a great deal to me. And anything I could do to be memorable uh, would help in the voting. But I, I have to say... As the years went along, when people got the list of suppliers, I was the beneficiary of having the letter D because the letter D, when you scroll down, it was alphabetic. <laughs> okay, um, I see where you're going uh, with this. Yep. Debco was D. Leeds was far down the alphabet from D. <laughs> from us. Uh, Spectre was right at the bottom. So um, I was aided and abetted by the fact that the alphabet and how they did the structure, people got to my name first. That's the self-facing uh, comedy that I love because you know and I know that you won really, that legitimately. I, really I know how I voted. It would be whoever was close to the top of the alphabet. I couldn't be bothered scrolling down any further. But, you know, when we started, the king of the castle was Pen Pal. Oh, okay. Paul wow. the Bill Nasir, they were they were gods, and for us to topple them uh, and start to get mindshare with the distributors, um, yeah, I guess the winning of awards was starting to get people's attention. Just who are these guys? 
So yeah, that was that was great. Okay. So on the other end of the spectrum, when you've got winning on one hand, which feels awesome, and it's a report card, and it's a reflection of how well you're doing, what about the other end of the spectrum, the challenges one faces? What were some of the challenges you faced as a business owner, as a young business owner in those days? Well, we talked about it, the, you know, the dynamics of a family business fitting in, mm. it was a bit of an autocracy. Mm. And, you know, I struggled to, to find my role. And I, I, I alluded earlier that I didn't know if I could fit. Um, and and, and I, I, as I said, I, I did contact the Scotiabank, but never pursued it. And I'm grateful that I didn't. But that that plagued me in my time at Debco. The the and I did find it debilitating. Mm. Um, and I think maybe the less said, the better. Sure, I, I appreciate that absolutely. Um, you you now go on to win three, four, five. I don't even remember how many supplier of the years in a row that Debco won. Um, at that point, did you realize this is a juggernaut? This this is absolutely this is big. No, because you could win an award. That was just a popularity contest. Ah. You could win an award and technically be bankrupt within a couple of months. That was all it was, was a popularity contest where I had the benefit of alphabetically being the letter D. Rather have been the letter A, saying Adeco Company. Would even have been better. But I have to say, when I realized that we were a juggernaut, this is going to be kind of shocking, is when we went the mergers and acquisition route oh. and 19 potential suitors put a qualifying offer in to buy Debco. I realized we truly had arrived. Oh, that, that's an answer that actually surprises me. Um, I'm kind of shocked as I sit here because it, it really shows your humility, your, your, your humbleness. To not know that, to not realize that is stunning to me that, that you only really ever felt that and knew that when you got all these offers after you decided to put the company up for sale. That's uh, truly incredible, Stan. Um. Here's my next question for you. We we start to you start to get bigger. You start your department starts to get a little bit bigger. I, I've come on board now. Uh, been an account manager for a couple of years, and one of the things I noticed about you as a tremendous leader, Stan, is that you had an ability to be able to give power, to allow people to take power and use it, provided they 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 didn't wield it in negative ways. And I, I always respected that about you. Um, and I, I want to specifically go into an example where I I got another job a few <laughs> years after I had started at the company. <laughs> you know where this is going, right? Coming up, buddy. Don't <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> okay. And how? And and anyways, we we could talk about that later. But look, the net result is that you gave me a lot of your job because I said, I don't know how I can survive in this company, Stan. You do what I want to do and I want to do it. Um, how how do you do that? How do you give that power? How do you allow people to grow into these positions and then start to step back and and 
do it without ego. I, I just, I, I, ego is something I've, I've been working on a lot these last bunch of months. And I just look at you as just a shining example of how you were able to let that go and coexist with people that you trusted and believed in. Well, I guess it's about a perception of myself. I mean, I don't really see myself as particularly bright or well-read. <laughs> I believed that I was a maven in business psychology. I, I did. But other than that, I couldn't tell you where the print shop was. They'd have to do a roadmap. We'd be sitting, I'd be sitting in meetings with distributors and they'd bring out a product and they'd show me this item. And I go, well, we probably should have that in stock. And they said, that is one of your items. <laughs> nice. I never took myself that seriously. Um, I believe that others had particular talents and I was very comfortable with focusing in the psychological aspects of what I was trying to do. Um, I was a relationship builder and ego has no place if you're trying to build relationships with staff yep. and with clients uh, and with other suppliers. Um, there just seemed to be, it was counterintuitive to be fighting with people that you're trying to build relationships. And I genuinely believed that people had a lot of bright ideas to bring. And I was very confident in what I brought. And I never felt threatened by anybody usurping my authority or wanting to usurp my authority. I was happy if they did. They probably knew more than I knew. But in one particular area, I, I felt very strongly that I actually knew the right answer to the problem. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. And you even proved that in your business title. At times in my career at Debco, I had a higher business title than you, and yet you were my boss. It was unbelievable. I, and, and that just I, I I just find that so beautiful. And ever since I, I've I've never believed in in putting down owner of company as a position. I, I just believe in saying what I do. I, I help people. I'm a creator. I'm a I'm a relationship manager. That's that's what I do. And I, I learned that off you. So thank you for for teaching me that. I, I'm really appreciative. Hey Stan, what were your passions outside of the company? And you know, did ever any, any of those passions ever make their way into the business? Uh, did they define who you were as a business person? Are they holistic and part of the same thing? Do they go together or, or are they two separate worlds? Well, very clearly, um, baseball and hockey were perfect. Uh, they were my passions. And we did uh, experiential events where I used a strength of something that I was good at and we brought them into the company to help with relationship building with customers. These were out-of-the-box ideas that played into something that I was very comfortable doing, mm. which um, we got a lot of mileage and a lot of tractions and held countless events, baseball and hockey, across the country, made a name for ourselves by doing these events that brought people together in ways that they had never been brought together before. Um, sometimes a cocktail party uh, was replaced by a PPHL hockey event, which we'll talk about later. Mm. But yes, I did. I, I, it masked my in extreme social awkwardness. When you're playing sports, uh, your social awkwardness is hidden. Because as long as you're, say, decent at a sport, that's where people were focusing on. 
And I always played up the gallon strengths and running a sporting event. Um, nobody is an owner or distributor of a company when you're on the ice. You're all sitting in a dressing room. When you're playing baseball out in Winnipeg, there are no suppliers and distributors. It's just a bunch of people working for a common goal. But boy, can you imprint on them. Uh, they were tremendous goodwill enhancers that nobody else was doing. And my passions allowed us to differentiate ourselves uh, as, as, as a company that would bring new and different methods of interaction that had never been done before in the industry. And I believe we got a tremendous amount of mileage. So for me, um, I played to the Stan Gallen strengths while I continue to hide my abundant amount of weaknesses. Ha, that's fascinating. I think that you intuitively then stumbled upon something that a lot of people fail to do, and that is find their passion, find their joy, and then incorporate that into all aspects of life. Because we tend to segregate those things, don't we? You know, people say, oh, I got to go to work now. Uh, and, and then, oh, I, I get playtime this weekend. Well, you know, you found a way to be able to bring playtime and to bring passion into work. And those baseball games, those hockey games, uh, the carnivals that we put on, the barbecues that we put on, the music <clears throat> events that were put on, you allowed not only your own energy from your passions to come into work, but you allowed the passions of others in our business to be able to uh, bring those passions and, and do events that meant something to all of us. And so I remember doing a barbecue that was all about Zen one year. And we had, remember that one, we had sand gardens and we had uh, even animals for tranquility. And you know that that's the brainchild of, of someone who that's their passion, right? And and you allowed people that space. And so it's just such an important lesson for people to understand that bring your passions, bring your love, bring your joy and your energy into work. And the two need not be separated. They, they coexist beautifully. And when they do, it makes for better business. It makes for better opportunity, I, I think, is the lesson here that, uh, that, that you've just shared with us. Thank you. Hey, did you have any mentors in the industry as you journeyed through it? Or, or, or you're just like, I did it my way. <laughs> no, I, I, I clearly did. Um, I only put four names, but there, there were more. Uh, Terry Vickers, Craig, clearly created by Craig. Um, mentor, uh, we worked with created by Craig for many, many years. Uh, she was an employee of Debco for a number of years until her contract expired. Um, I have to say she was the um, driving the effort to allow me to be uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2012, something that I will never forget and was extremely uh, meaningful to me. Uh, fearless Fred Olson. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Emceeing his awards night introduction into the Hall of Fame, um, Freddie didn't know that he was a mentor because I was observing Freddie. Um, the, the passion, the power of goodwill. Freddie never sold a product or nor did he consume a product when he was a member of Task Force. But the power of goodwill, uh, when I emceed, and Freddie's name was introduced, 
uh, the room was, there was thunderous applause. I mean, of course, there's polite applause when people are posthumously uh, inducted into the hall or some are not posthumously. Sometimes the, 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 the passion of the clapping was pretty much the same. Right. Not when Freddie was there. Freddie, it, the people were wild and screaming. And I remember standing on stage and they tell you, don't rock back and forth. And the, it just went on and on. But what I learned there was I was already practicing goodwill. That mm. was my thing. But when I saw the passion that was directed at Freddie, it meant you were on the right track. This was where you want to go. And Freddie didn't even know that I was that I was taking that stance, but he reaffirmed what I had already believed. And the emceeing, the being right there and watching him in action, it was fate. It, it, it really was fate. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Peter Saunders, uh, ex of the old Merit Impressions, was a guy I called. I mean, before the before we had cell phones and cheap uh, long distance rates, I'm going to say I spoke to Peter every single day. He was located in Calgary to get advice on how to deal with distributor problems. He would give me supplier ideas. He wanted me to, on the board of the PPPC, which I turned down. Um, but but Peter was vital uh, to my early success. And I have another name here, Alex Morin, <laughs> both a protege, protege and a mentor. You drove me to be the best I could be every day because watching you revolutionize how things were done. I wanted to be your running mate. You were so skilled. You were so impressive that I never wanted to let you down. And I would be remiss if I didn't add you to that list. I um, I knew there would be tears during this podcast <laughs> and I have yeah. them in my eyes right now. I'm so touched. Uh, thank you, Stan. Um, I just, it means the world to me. Thank you. Uh, interestingly, Terry Craig Vickers, is a mentor of mine also. And she is why I call myself a creator because Terry is someone who just incessantly created everywhere she went, whether it was marketing genius material, whether it was sales, whether it was inductions into Hall of Fame. She just, whenever Terry had an idea, she could manifest it. People talk a lot about manifesting these days. And I recognized that immediately. And so she she was a big mentor of mine. And then Fred Ozen, oh, what an interesting dude. Uh, Fred taught me probably the best relationship person I've ever seen in my life, certainly in the industry. And, you know, Fred was twice my age, maybe three times my age. I was a young dude traveling across the country with Task Force Marketing. Um, and of course, his wife at the time, Leslie, another fabulous person, um, Fred had this ability to be able to just attract masses of people, like you say, or masses of applause. And I recognized that immediately. And I, I wanted to be at the dinner table with Fred. I wanted to soak it in. I wanted to understand what makes him him. And I, I credit him as well, Stan. He was he was a tremendous one. And of course, I will throw the honor right back at you as being uh, my, my most significant business mentor ever. I want, I want to pile back on Fred for just a second. Sure. It's a little bit aggressive, but... A, a, an actual pivotal moment in our career was when when Freddie granted the late John Gilbert and I um, an interview, a meeting uh, 
at the last time, I guess it would be 1995, the last time the Promotional Products Association held the the annual meeting in Vancouver. Yep. I was staying in, I don't know, probably a Howard Johnson. <laughs> and Freddie invited us to his suite in downtown Toronto, which was actually Vancouver. two floors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In downtown Vancouver, two floors. I remember uh, Mike Matthews walking by on the second level wearing a bathrobe. And I thought, <laughs> wow, I mean, I don't even want to go into that. But I'm coming from a Howard Johnson, not uh, uh, the, uh, Johnny, John Gilbert and I, Knight, the old Nitec design, are sitting on a couch and we're waiting for our audience with Fred. And we inevitably did get in. But the importance of Freddie. Uh, allowing us into task force at such a young age, so to speak, mm-hmm. fast tracked us as being a supplier of value. It gave us the the you know it was supposed to be you know elite suppliers selling to elite distributors, and he fast tracked us. He was gigantic, and he didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. He was pivotal in every way to to our firm. Yeah, and very. Yeah. Absolutely. So again, we it's I always like to examine both sides of the spectrum. Here you've got mentors. Uh, you understand motivation very well. You studied it in university. Were you ever motivated by the opposite force? Were you? Did you ever look at anyone who was antagonistic? Did you ever take a look at a dysfunctional uh, company or or someone that uh, that that had bad things to say about Debco and derive <laughs> your motivation from people or companies or actions at all? Because hey, those can be equally as motivating as uh, as your own positive reinforcement or your own goals and visions. Well, I'm going to tell you a story, this one. You know this story, but this has never come out before. There was one, one particular event that is, uh, okay, it all uh, stems around the American invasion in approximately 2010, where the Leedses, the gem lines of the world came in, and they were traipsing on, uh, I was the bad guy. I, Debco was the bad guy. We taught everyone how to say B-A-G as opposed to B-A-D. I don't know how clear this audio is going to be. The bad guy. Okay. B-A-G. Right. Okay. American invasion happens. Um, This one's with real earnest. Okay. You know, before we had fought back Acro, Honta, uh, Leeds had come in briefly a few years earlier, but decided to leave. This time they were coming in. Debco used a variety of blocking strategies, which in retrospect, probably enhanced the growth and development of the American suppliers. Mm. We were ill-equipped to handle this time what they were doing. You know, you couldn't just lower the prices, the quality of our product line, the finishings. They had a better quality product. We were falling over ourselves trying to figure out and strategize how to handle the invasion. Mm. And we, it was awards night. We, you know, the awards time had come. And after 10 years in a row of, of, I think of being the gold supplier of the year, we didn't finish even in the top 10. Mm. And for me, that was humbling. I mean, this was, as I said, this was my report card and I had failed. Um, and in a family business, failing was 
not an, it was not uh, acceptable. Gotcha. And I, I didn't even want to go to awards night because, you know, I had to be, I think you might've said, you can't, you can't not go. You can't be a baby. You got to go. Yeah. Um, it, it's a really bad man. What a poor sport. You got to go. Okay. So I go, but I'm really humbled. Like, and there's no denying. I wear my emotions on my sleeve and I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm mortified. Like, if you I, really, this is Mr. Mortified. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the gold, they, they announced the, the gold, silver, bronze names I won't mention. And I'm sitting there just, I'm stewing, I'm aggravated. So, Sean Rolfe, the incredibly <laughs> yeah. talented, dynamic, every, really just one of a kind, um, he is repping one of these companies. So he's behind stage. So he comes out. He's sitting at our table. I mean, I got a face. I got a pun on me that just says, this guy is totally uh, annoyed. And he comes up and he says, hey, Stan, do you want me to tell you something that's really going to make you upset? It's already <laughs> upset. What? No, first I said, no, I'm already upset. And then my obsessive compulsiveness said, yeah, just tell me what it is. Yeah. He said, okay, so what happened is the, we'll call it the CEO of the gold winning firm asked all of the, you know, the gold, the silver and the bronze all to take a group picture. Yep. And as the cameraman was about to click the picture, he said, on three, just say Debco. Mm. I, you got to know your audience. To me, that's the proverbial locker room statement. Yep. That's the thing you don't do to, to fire up your competitor. I was quiet. <clears throat> I drove up the uh, Don Valley Parkway. I was, my wife was out of town actually. Um, after awards night, I drove quietly up the Don Valley. I live up in York region, took about 45 minutes and I developed an action plan to put us back on the podium. It re-energized me that I had become too complacent. And actually the first thing I did was the next morning I went right and met somebody called Gladys, who I had, Gladys Casp. I didn't know who she was. Mm -hmm. She was with our association. I said, I would like to, to put my name back in as being a judge of awards night. And the sole reason for that was we may not win another gold or silver or bronze supplier of the year, but at the very least, I could get my name on that big screen in front of, you know, five to 800 people just by judging, because it would say, Judge Stan Gallon Debco. Yep. Just to get my name back on the board, if I was willing to give one weekend, I could get our name back at least on the screen and have people see the name Stan Gallon Debco. And it was worth it to me. I also made a commitment to be re energized and go back on the road, visiting distributors with a passion that I used to have. And I decided to participate in more PPPC events that would help uh, differentiate us and imprint the name of, of Debco. That singular event of just say Debco changed me from 2010 
until 2018 when I left in December of that year. That was the event. You you said earlier that it's the classic locker room statement, and I think what you meant by that is is it's like when a when a team says, "Oh yeah, they don't stand a chance against us," and the coach takes that quote, puts it on a piece of paper or a banner, puts it in the locker room, and everyone looks at it every day. And I I actually really remember that instance. I remember Sean telling you that uh, that story. I remember how fired up you were about it and it changed the course of history at our company you did get on the road this is when you started the gallon on the go uh tours uh and you and you began going across the country talking to everybody re-engaging getting out there it was it was inspirational it was unbelievable and do you want to share what the result was the following year at the image awards because i remember what it was no i don't think we made it the next year we made it the year after that we made it back and on the podium, but not to gold the, the following. I, th- I, I, I will accept that. I don't remember, but I think we got a bronze. And then we promptly went gold right until the time that I left. Correct. Um, which, interestingly, you want to think it's a report card and a grading of you personally. However, so I'm gone in 2018. 2019 or 20 come up and it's like, well, I'll show them. They're probably not even going to finish in 10th. <laughs> well, you won again. And then you won again. Uh, so <laughs> you took a lot of air out of my balloon thinking you were the guy. But what I think it did was we had customer service was truly in the DNA of Debco. Yes, absolutely. And I used to say that in our award speeches. I didn't really mean it, but it really was. In retrospect, even though we'll call it the lead dog was no longer there, we had customer service in our DNA. And I, you could tell me, though, I think they've won it continuously since I've been gone. So I think so. I, I've lost track now, but yes, certainly the, the two years after you left. But I, listen, that's because your fingerprints were all over the company still. And, uh, and you're right. The service was in the DNA and, and still is in the DNA. It's a fabulous company. Um, talking about motivation. So they were talking about antagonistic motivation. Is there anything external that, that motivates you and motivated you outside of business that, that, that you brought into business? And maybe we've already covered that with regard to sports, but, uh, anything else that you can think of? Well, my motivation never really changed. I think when you're in a, in a difficult family dynamic, you are, trying to prove yourself every day. It, it is an, 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 I had an inherent motivation to succeed. The dynamic, you were only as good as your last sale. You were only as good as your last positive accomplishment. I had a, just an intense drive that even transcended outside of business. Like I just did some really stupid things. Um, I mean, you'll remember one of them. I don't even know if it's relevant, but it is a classic. Hmm. It involves a baseball game in the Thornhill playoffs. Uh-huh. Uh, yes. In San Gallen or in Halifax. Uh, Alex has just finished doing the Tops trade show. We have game one of a, of a three-game playoff series, for want of a better term, uh, in Toronto that night, Friday night. Um, Alex, you left on the plane and you got there. Um, on time. 
I was on my little gallon on the go tour, so I wasn't leaving uh, the the uh, the provinces until sometime like Wednesday or Thursday of the following week. But I I flew in just to play ball, and after the game, I flew back to Halifax. Um, it was just if you made a commitment to be a ball player, to be a coach on a team. You put every single passion that you had into it. I was an all or nothing guy. I, I, I was an orgasm. There was no fooling around. I either was completely involved or I had no interest whatsoever. There was no middle ground with me. Um, I remember just similar stupid things I did um, of having arthroscopy in one of my knees and we have, uh, this was on a Thursday morning. And I said to the surgeon who actually was uh, one of our staff member, Karen Rosenfeld's dad yep. at, at the Trillium Hospital, I believe. Um, I just said, is there any chance I could play in our final baseball game on Sunday? <laughs> this is three days later. And he said, well, if you can handle the pain, um, go ahead. If, if things go bad, you'll know where to find me. I just kind of did dumb stuff like that. And I did. And I did play. There was always this drive, uh, this commitment. I was a very committed guy. It took me a while to make that commitment. But but if I did, I gave my all. Um, and it's never changed. Even now in my little world, I still have the same type of passion, motivation, and drive. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I really answered the question, but um, yeah, I can see the human spirit. I, I can see what motivates you outside of business, and that's excellence. That's a desire to succeed, to to put it all on the line, to just uh, recklessly go for it. And that that example of of flying me back from Halifax to play in a ball game, and you from wherever you were in the country. And incidentally, we lost that game when we, when we came back. We got defaulted in the middle of the game. And after four innings, I recognized I had to get back on a plane and go back to Halifax. Like, it was fine when you were motivated that you were playing. And once the game suddenly ended because somebody swore at the ump, it was like, oh, my God, I have to go home. Reality set in. It was uh, – It was. I didn't get back into the room till a quarter to two in the morning. Yeah. Incidentally, um, that was, the person swearing at the ump was not you and not me. So we'll, we'll just make that clear to our listeners right now. No, the, the, the other thing – I mean, I'm at the stage where I'm still – motivated to compete even against myself. Yeah. I mean, I got the bid on every day. I can proudly say about two weeks ago, I golfed, I played hockey and baseball all within a two-day period. Um, it's just the way I am. There's always trying to push myself to another level, kind of another level of stupidity. I remember the last one on this stupid train of thought. I was going in for knee replacement surgery, partial knee replacement from yep. playing goal. Yep. And I decided in order to kill time because you had to fast, I went to the gym for an hour and a half on the elliptical and went right from there to the hospital to get a knee replacement. I mean, is anything stupider? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know 
do with myself for an hour and a half other than be hungry. So I decided to work out at the gym for an hour and a half, which interestingly enough, COVID then hit. And it was the last time that I was ever in the Good Life Gym mm. for one and a half years until this week when I rejoined. Wow. By digressing. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you finish. I, I just, I think that's marvelous. I think people need to understand your humanity, who you are, what drives you. Uh, I just, I, I think that's so cool. So what about the opposite end of the spectrum? Again, let's keep on looking at opposites because it's so fun and interesting. You ever get stuck in a rut career-wise? Did you ever feel that way? Did you ever feel entrapped, enslaved? Um, uh, this sucks. You couldn't do it anymore. Did that ever cross your mind? Yeah, you start in that. Okay, you know, do tell. Okay, so you know, a couple of years into your uh, uh, employment at Debco, I mean, we hadn't quite recognized your talent yet, and there were there were uh, roadblocks ahead of you. Um, ESP noticed uh, your potential and offered you the the national sales manager job two years into a fledgling career at Debco. So, I mean, I know that you remember the acrimonious meeting that we had. It was the, this was a business meeting and your future was on the line. And I doing my thing, which is trying to persuade you not to leave. And you just looked at me and said, this is ridiculous what you're saying. You're the national sales manager at Debco. That." The job they're offering me is your job. Yes, I did do that. And, you know, there was this time, I remember there was a pregnant pause. And it's like, I can't lose this guy. And I remember you even went as far as saying, I'll always remember this. Is it okay if I get up and walk and say goodbye to the staff? Yeah. It had gone that far. And um, I remember sitting there going, no. No, no, there has to be a way we can figure this out. I know that my brother and sister-in-law will not want me to let you walk out. And what we did was come up with a joint duo national sales manager role where you became the minister of external affairs and I was the minister of internal affairs. And... After a period of time of, listen, I was not crossing. I knew how great you were. And there's no way if I make a commitment and a promise to you, there's no way I'm breaking it. And I was clearly in a rut because I was blocked from doing what I did, what I enjoyed doing most. But it was a trade-off that was required to keep what in my mind was the single most talented human being that the promotional products industry has ever seen, and that is you. Mm -hmm. So the American invasion happens, and we are falling all over ourselves. Um, you're going out and doing your standard passionate PK with the whole with the whole nine yards, the enthusiasm, and you said to me one day, it's not working. <clears throat> The objections that are coming across every time I speak, distributors are having a field day interrupting me. One after, I, I can't even do a PK. So if you want to keep sending me out doing these PKs, that's fine. 
but they want to see you. They want you. You brought them to the table in the 1990s. They want to see you and they want you to promise them that you're going to fix this firm. So what I would like and what it would be best is if you went back on the road and did your institutional Stan Gallen thing, and I'll even segue back and slow down some of my mm-hmm. uh, meetings yep. until we get this this done. So I was able to relive the passion of seeing clients, and they were very difficult circumstances, I have to tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the things I heard were humiliating, but, it, but you were on board with this. So I didn't have to break a promise. I got out of my rut. You, I was doing the institutional stuff that you needed to pave the way for you to do your job. I was trying to, now I had to go back out and clear the underbrush so that you could go in with your PKs. It was, it wasn't a perfect arrangement because those meetings were brutal. Um, the things that I was told were, they were awful, mm. but it allowed me to get out of the rut and get back doing what I love doing the most. We're meeting incredible distributors across Canada. So it really did work out well. And it, it all had to do with Alex Morin and ESP. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, it, it, it really <clears throat> speaks to, I think, I think our, our our level of coexistence, our mutual admiration for one another and, and mutual love for one another, quite frankly, it look like anything in life, I think that it takes time to be able to to work things out and have it work beautifully. And the simple fact of the matter is that when I started going out of, on the road full time and you became the minister of external in internal affairs, that is, and I recognized that people wanted to see you, I... I took a page out of your book and I realized, look, Stan's not going to usurp my power. I I trust him. He's never lied to me. He's always been honest. So I I needed you. I asked you if you would help and you said yes immediately. And and that that just really that's the nature of real relationships. That's the nature of of how you grow a company is by hearing one another out, hearing what one another need. And you understood that I had a need to feed my family. And this opportunity that was that was provided to me by another company allowed me to do that to an extent that that uh, I hadn't dreamed of at that point. It was a massive, massive, massive turning point in my life for so many reasons, from a professional standpoint, from my friendship perspective with you, um, a confidence perspective. I, I can't even begin to tell you how massive a moment that was. But for those listening right now to this podcast, you can have these conversations if they come from the heart. And we had a heartfelt conversation in that office of yours, that tiny office of yours. We, we had a, a heartfelt conversation there. And, and I know we both had tears. And I remember asking you if I could say bye to the staff. Uh, you nodded your head. I opened the door. And as I walked right underneath the doorframe, you said, come back and please close the door. And I did. And the rest is history. It was it was uh, a moment that whew, it was a moment I'll never forget because it changed my life. Thank you. It changed my life, and it was beautiful. It was uh, 
it was uh, it was a partnership. It was two people that genuinely cared about one another, and uh, and who did it for the well being of the company and the well being of ourselves. And and we we did it, man. From that moment on, I we never looked back. And I wondered, and you may have wondered, but I certainly wondered: can we ever have the same relationship again? And and it, I it, think I asked you that. It got uh, better. Since we had lawyers involved in drawing up an yes. agreement. Yes. And I remember saying to you, now that we've got everything done, can we ever work together again? And the answer was yes. We yeah. put it behind us and just moved on. And uh, it was a phenomenal run. It was phenomenal. Agree. And and listen, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna share another very quick uh, teachable moment here. I, I just did a podcast on my other podcast, Almost Enlightened, and it's a, it's about awareness. And you know, we're we're afraid to go to the next level quite often in life to take our relationships to the next level, to take our health to the next level, to take our our wealth to the next level. Um, and and we're afraid because we're comfortable in a situation, right? But we, you and I, proved Stan that that. In spite of a very tense conversation, in spite of you know probably ill will and feelings that 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 were negative initially, anyways, we worked through it. We built a new level of awareness, and it strengthened our relationship, and it strengthened the business. <clears throat> so anybody listening, always know that in the midst of the worst things that can possibly happen in business, are some of the greatest opportunities that you will ever ever incur. And I just am so thankful for that moment and honestly thankful for some of the other difficult moments in my life because they have caused me to see the world in a different way and uh, take my awareness levels to new levels. And uh, that's, that's pretty special. So that was an issue where you problem resolved. You did a lot of that in your time. And I actually learned a great deal about problem resolving. That was the biggest issue that I ever encountered. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was big for both of us, for sure. So what did you think of part one? Was that not crazy cool? I got to tell you something. Part two is even more wild. In part two, we get really, really personal. And Stan starts to talk a little bit more about problem resolve. We explore the nature of empathy and we even go into social limitations as they pertain to, you guessed it, body image. On top of that, we'll delve into role playing and we'll explore some of Stan's most memorable and significant moments in his career. Hey, I'm honored that you stuck around for part one. You do not want to miss part two. So please, if you're watching this video right now, click subscribe to this channel, like this video if you enjoyed it, leave us a review if you want to, and even hit the notification button as well so that when future videos come out, you are notified. If you're watching on podcast or listening on podcast, you can subscribe as well. And don't forget to check out our website, www.promonoise.com. There's always tons of interesting information and you can sign up for my newsletter over there. Hey, thanks very much. And I can't wait to see you for episode two. Let's keep making beautiful noise together.